Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all other assorted creatures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, the first reading is Joshua 3, verses 1 through 17. And Tim is up with some thoughts on how we might understand and preach this text. So uh, give us a heads up, Tim. Remind us, where are we in the story at this moment? Yeah, yeah. So this is a transition point in that big story of Israel's history with God. Moses has died and leadership has transitioned to Joshua. And they've scoped out the land on the west side of the Jordan River, including their first target, Jericho. But the people haven't crossed into that promised land until now. Yeah, this is like, I mean, how many years and how many generations in the making is this moment? I mean, this is a this is a huge moment. And perhaps in honor of the hugeness of this moment, God kind of holds back the river like a giant invisible dam, right? You got it. Yep. So there's this miraculous holding back of the water of the Jordan and crossing over on dry land that's reminiscent of the Reed Sea crossing in Exodus 14. Mm-hmm. And I'd say there's a couple ways to read this from a literary and theological perspective. Okay, all right. So draw those out for us. Sure. So the first way is to see this as a kind of recapitulation of the Reed Sea crossing. Remember, they they have a new leader in Joshua, and the people themselves are not the generation that came out of Egypt. According Mm -hmm. to the story, this is 40 years later, and all those who were originally liberated, or at least the adults among them, have died in transit, except for a couple, Joshua, Caleb. So one way to see the story is as a redo of that original miracle in order to authorize Joshua as a leader and instill the same kind of respect for him that the people had for Moses. And actually, this authorization of Joshua is fairly explicit there in verse 7. But then it's also to give this new generation a taste of the way that God provides by giving them a miracle similar to what their parents experienced. I like that. I mean, not just for this story, but for our own churches and communities even. So it's sort of this moment of of experiencing God's power and presence and provision, both for past generations and for us here today. Yeah, I I think you're right. This is the kind of text that can remind us to look to the present and to the future for what God is up to, and not just to our sort of idealized past. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only way to read this passage. Okay, yeah, you said you had a couple different approaches. So where else are you taking this one? Well, instead of reading this primarily as a recapitulation or redo of the Reed Sea Crossing, you could read that resonance here as a kind of bookend to the whole period of the wilderness. Oh, crossing yeah. through the waters of liberation into the wilderness and then back through the waters into the promised land makes the wilderness a kind of liminal space where normal life is on pause and the people have special access to God. Mm. And sure enough, the wilderness story is quite a bit like that. Out there in the wilderness, the normal ways of getting food and water are suspended, and instead they collect manna from the ground and water from the rock. Mm. Out there, they meet with God at the mountain and receive a special covenant and a new identity as those who bear God's name. It all happens almost like like in a dream, in a haze. I sort of picture it in slow motion. Mm. And then now, in this text in Joshua 3, the people pass back through the water and into what we might call the real world, where they have to actually live out that identity that they've been given. And mm. I think this, this way of reading the text is more than just my sort of imaginative take. 
Because shortly after this passage, uh, in chapter 5, when the people do make it through to the other side of the Jordan, three things happen. First, they circumcise all the men and boys, which will definitely snap you back into reality. (laughs) But besides that, they reenact the Passover meal to celebrate their liberation from Egypt. And then in that moment, the manna that's been sustaining them for those 40 years stops. And from now on, in the real world, they have to live off the land that God has given them. Oh my gosh, there that is such a rich, rich text. I mean, there's so many ways you could take it. You could talk about baptismal identity with the leading out of the liberating waters and then the promised land waters. You could really live into that liminal space that you talk about, especially where we are in COVID right now. Um, and then that sort of like snapping back to reality piece of um, now having to live off the land that God has given them. So God's no longer providing for them food. He's providing for them ways to get their food. Um, so how, what directions would you take? How would you make use of this text for today? I think it's good to build those kinds of liminal spaces into our own lives. Sort mm-hmm. of time away from the hustle and bustle to be with God, maybe even in the literal wilderness. Uh, and for some of us, even even participating in a church worship service is a kind of liminal space, whether you're there physically or logging on virtually. It's sort of this in-between space of being connected with God while taking a break from the, the mm-hmm. hustle and bustle of the world. But then God calls us into the real world, and we're meant to bring that identity that God gives us into that real world as best as we can. Mm-hmm. But, and this is important. We don't leave God out there in the liminal space. You might notice that the other important part of this passage is the significant attention that's given to the Ark of the Covenant. Mm. Here, that Ark serves as a physical and conveniently portable manifestation (laughs) of God's own presence. Mm. When the people leave the wilderness behind, God goes with them into the real world, just as God Mm. had promised in the text that we looked at last week with you, Rachel. Yeah, yeah. And this is another reason that the miracle with the river is so important to the telling of the story. They didn't cross into the land over like, you know, a bridge or by fording the river on rafts. The the way across was made by God in a way that only God could. Mm. So their first experience of passing into the real world with God is an experience of dependence and vulnerability for the people as they literally step into the miracle that God's providing. Oh, I like that. I like that into the real world while depending on God. I, I like that too, because this real world that they're entering is gift from God. It's, it's promised land. It's been promised as gift. So it might be scary. It might be vulnerable. But leaving that liminal space is actually a gift to them. That seems like it'll preach. Yeah, that's a good that's a great point, Rachel, because the the space there with God in the wilderness, that's not like heaven for them. <laughs> that's yeah, right. <laughs> it's preparatory. It's it's um it's a kind of Sabbath, a, a recharging, but that's not their destination. The destination, the gift, the promise is the land itself. Mm. Yeah, that seems like it'll preach. I think so. And it already has preached for generation after generation. Okay, what do you mean? Well, if you're reading this passage carefully, and I hope all of you preachers out there are reading the text carefully, Mm -hmm. you might notice some oddities in this text. Verse 12, 
it sort of interrupts out of nowhere. And it actually belongs later at chapter 4, verse 2. Okay. There's some discrepancy in the text as to whether the priest stood at the edge of the Jordan, say mea yarden, or whether they were in the very exact middle of the Jordan, betoch hayarden hachen. Okay. And it's even not quite clear who it is that's carrying the ark. Is it the priests, the Levites, the Levitical priests, or, or what? <laughs> that makes me think of the story, the day the crayons came home. There's a crayon who talks about the toddler drawings and they can't understand. Are they donkeys, monkeys, donkey monkeys? <laughs> that's very irrelevant. But anyway, keep going. There's also a really unusual title for God in verse 11. Adon kol ha'aretz, Lord of the whole mm. land which is used only a few times in the whole Bible, and it's almost always in very late texts. So it's likely in addition to this one here. And, oh. and there's other signs in this text that scribes continued to come back over and over to this text through the centuries of the formation of the Bible, tweaking it and updating it, because this was seen as a pivotal moment for Israel. Mm. And it continued to preach to them in their circumstances, generation after generation. In fact, it's no surprise that even more than half a millennium later, as we read the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, when the people of Judea want to show that they're ready for God's kingdom to begin anew, where do they go? Uh, to the Jordan River. Yeah. And their baptisms, including Jesus' own, is a kind of reenactment of this pivotal moment of stepping through the water to receive God's promise. Okay, Tim, so you're telling our preachers who are listening to this text that there's evidence in this text that this text preached to preachers for generations and was used by preachers for generations. Is that right? Oh, yeah, totally. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, great. So anything else you got? Any, any preaching pitfalls you might throw out there? Yeah, there is one preaching pitfall I want to draw our attention to. Verse 10 is one of those explicit statements of invitation or actually command, I guess, to dispossess the indigenous peoples of the land. We, we come across this all the time, don't we? The, mm. the pitfall here would be to soften that conquest in our metaphorizing of the text. You know, like time to take hold of the future that God's promised, just like the children of Israel took hold of the promised land. And instead, I'd say that whenever this theme comes up in the text, especially if it has that list of indigenous peoples like it does here, preachers ought to take a minute to bring its problematic nature into the light. Mm. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's actually an opportunity to highlight the way that most historical narratives, including our own, usually get told from a one-sided perspective. Mm. The regular presence of these statements in the text punctuate our celebration of history with opportunities to reflect on the experiences of those who have been displaced by our own happy stories. Mm. Now, I don't think that needs to be the central point of your sermon, but its prominent presence in this text deserves at least a strongly stated aside. Mm. And as far as a sermon angle, I, I think I've already suggested some of the ways that I might go, but I'll just add this here. This text falls in the lectionary during election week in the United States. Mm. And it's clear even back when we're recording this, that it cannot be other than a contentious and momentous week for Americans and for those who follow American politics in the world. Mm. However the election goes, it feels like the stakes are just so high 
And like it's a turning point moment for us as a nation. So with that turning point sense in mind, I think this text has a lesson for people of faith. Whether that election goes in your favor or not, we need to keep ourselves from barreling forward into November, into that post-election real world, on our own steam. Mm. Or on our own. As those whose allegiance is first to the reign of God in the world, we need to come back to the Jordan, just like John the Baptist did, just like Jesus did, like Mm. Joshua and the new generation of free Israelites did, to move forward into whatever future lies ahead with God and in dependence upon God as bearers of the name of God in our world. That's how we move forward as people of hope, as in Paul's words, ministers of reconciliation, as doers of justice and lovers of mercy, and as those who walk in humility with God. I think that's the only way forward. Mm, I think that's beautiful and really, really well said. And I think if if you wanted to get there biblically, dear preachers, um, do something that we tell you almost never to do, which is to go into the New Testament. <gasps> um, I know, I know. But you went there first. Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan, and that baptism is not one of conquest. It's one of service. And in fact, there's a moment where Jesus has a moment with a Syrophoenician woman or a Canaanite woman, as it's talked about in the Matthean Gospel. And um, what comes of the, out of that moment is not conquest, but reconciliation and healing and justice. So I think that's a very appropriate way to go forward and a great treatment of this text. Thanks, Tim. No problem. Teaching the New Testament is uh, rubbing off on you, huh? I know, right? I know, I know. <laughs> it's, not, it's not corrupting me, I promise. If you find yourself corrupted by our podcast to be preaching more out of the Old Testament, well, welcome, dear friends. You are in good company, and we are glad to have you. We would love for you to go on our website or on our Facebook page and check out past episodes with brilliant scholars that we've had on the podcast with us. Um, Subscribe, share, and um, above all, just blessings on your sermon, especially this week at this moment in our nation. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McMinch. Thanks so much for listening. And, uh, you know, happy November. (laughs) Is that that a question or a statement? (laughs) We'll have to find out. (laughs) Uh.